Welcome to the T-Hud Podcast. I'm Leland Steele. And I'm Moby. And I gotta tell you, I already lied to you off off recording. Because I said I had, <laughs> okay. I, I said I cut down my banter to two banters today. Because I had so much fucking banter, listener. Like, like it, it's harvest time. It's November. I was harvesting banter these past couple of weeks. <laughs> but I, I do need to add a third. There's a critical third. It'll be like a 30 second mention, Leland. But uh, I'm stoked about this episode, buddy. How are you? I'm well. Uh, yeah, it should be good. We're we're into. Uh, I mean, we're coming to the end of the year. I can't believe. Wow. Uh, again, it's come. You know, it always seems to uh, <laughs> approach very quickly every fucking year. <laughs> I don't know how it keeps sneaking up on us, but and every year it's quicker. Yeah, exactly. I just I just imagine our lives together being a tunnel and you and me are on a boat and there's Willy Wonka screaming at us, <laughs> Leland and Moby, the colors go faster and faster and brighter and brighter every year. It's like, thank you, Willy Wonka. Yes, yeah, you know, yeah. life is getting shorter. <laughs> <laughs> so the, in that analogy, does Willy get more and more intense every year or does he slowly dwindle down to a drawl? As like a last death gasp as we finally approach our final year. In the words, and this will connect with our first segment. <laughs> okay. In the words of the immortal George Lucas, apparently the one and only thing he would ever give as direction to his actors is faster and more intense. There you go, Willy Wonka. There you go. Every year, faster and more intense. Oh, I love how there was a segue when you asked me that. <laughs> You know, th this show is amazing because through the years, you have expressed your never-ending hatred of Star Wars. And I know we're not going to get into this yet, but on the podcast, we consistently discuss Star Wars. In fact, the question is holding us back on how much we discuss Star Wars, which I just find fun. Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be by far our most top, the most talked about topic. <laughs> I mean, I think that, I don't know if that says more about us or more about the franchise itself, uh, positive or negative, you know? I think as we'll get into today, I feel it's going to be negative for that segment because <laughs> Star Wars has you know, an ability to age like fine wine where the cork has been chipped away and botulism fills the wine. So unfortunately, Star Wars, uh, I don't feel like they're going down a, a good path. And, and you know, we're going to, you know, dive into that. So that's a foreshadowing uh, for listener there. But yeah, I, I do want to make just one quick note before we dive into banter and everything. Listener, next month is December. December is the end of year review where we're filled with Christmas spirit and or spirits with whom we summon for end of year. But uh, there is the potential that uh, our release date for December fluctuates a little bit. Not sure it will, but I just wanted to throw that out there in case you're just listening to a segment or two and, you know, wonder where we are December 15th. And very well could drop them, but there's, I'm just saying there's the potential it could be moved a little bit this year. Yeah. I think most likely it probably will, but yeah, okay, unless you've got three banter, if we want to go back and forth, I might as well start with one of mine. Yeah, you start. So I'm actually going to start with the quickest one, the one that really doesn't need much discussion. But uh, I collaborated, listener. I officially collaborated with Retro Gamer Gen X, friend of the show. Uh, I have had him on as a guest, show, uh, guest uh, host earlier this year. We're going to have him on again uh, early next year. 
he needed some assistance. He was doing an episode on the TurboGrafx-16, which was voted by his uh, watchers, his viewers, on a poll. Uh, unfortunately, it's one of the few systems he wanted to review he doesn't own. So I gave, with my traditionally abhorrent, horrific, demonic microphone quality, uh, did a, a <laughs> tour, quote-unquote, with my webcam of my TurboGrafx-16 console. Um, I really like how his video turned out. Uh, he gave us a huge shout out in his podcast at the end. He said, you know, thank you to the T-Hud podcast. Filled the screen with our logo, had our logo in the bottom right through the whole segment. Very classy guy. Really, really a, a friend of the show. So we will be linking in the show notes a link to that YouTube video. Uh, because with any collaboration, uh, we hope you enjoyed uh, Retro Gamer Gen X's time on our show. And we hope you'll uh, give his video a watch uh, due to the collaboration. Cool. Yeah. No, I uh, I did watch your your bit of it. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. It, despite my microphone. From you, that means a lot. So Despite the microphone, yeah. I mean, anyway, it's listenable. It's just a little, it's a little uh, room echoey, that's all. <laughs> that's the new I dabble for us for a podcast. Uh, it's listenable. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you can listen you, to it. You guys podcast, it's listenable. That, yeah, that is our slogan. Yes, we that dabble. is the show's slogan after it's seven years. <laughs> it's listenable. <laughs> seven years. Anything else would be the bigotry of high expectations. So, <laughs> seven years. We're just warming up on the runway here, de-icing the wings still. You know, making sure the bags are loaded. We have yet to even taxi onto the runway of this show. <laughs> uh, and you better make sure your carry-on isn't too fucking big. Otherwise, this plane ain't taking off at all. <laughs> My first banter uh, actually comes from today. So I um, had a little extra time uh, that I didn't think I was going to have today. And I watched a, uh, a 23-year-old movie that I... I had just never seen in my youth. I watched The Cell today. Oh. Uh, yeah, from year 2000, starring Jennifer Lopez, Vince Vaughn, and a very young-looking Vincent D'Onofrio, which was, oh. I was surprised to see him in. I just had no idea. Um, this is like a film that, you know, I was fairly young, uh, you know, when it, when it came up. But I remember my dad and stepmom going to see it in the theaters and like my brother and I went to see a different movie. So like, I remember being in the theater when this film was in the theaters, even though it was over two decades ago, I thought it was really cool. It was very, uh, it's like kind of like a, a psychological thriller. Like there's this tech developed where Jennifer Lopez's character is like a social worker. And she, uh, through the use of this tech is able to go into the subconscious of um, like catatonic patients. And, you know, originally we see that she's, she's using this tech to try to connect with um, a, a kid to, to, to help out a, a child who's kind of in this state. And eventually she gets, you know, uh, asked by the FBI to use the same tech to go into the mind of a serial killer uh, who has fallen into their own kind of catatonic state due to this type of schizophrenia that they named in the film to help find the the killer's latest victim uh, who is still alive, trapped somewhere on a, so the, so the whole movie's on the clock It's your pretty, pretty typical thing, right? Movies on the clock they're, They got to uncover, uh, find this victim. I think that's, I would almost say that that's like nowadays, like that's very tropey, maybe a little newer back, you know, a little more fresh back then, but 
I thought the visuals were really intense in this film. I think uh, D'Onofrio got to, he must have had a good time on this set because like every, he's he's in so many different fantastical costumes and just makeup and like personas. Like it was, he was varying different personas within his own schizophrenic subconscious. Uh, it was cool. I mean, I just, for having never seen it before, it was really enjoyable. I really liked it. It was uh, it was cool. I just can't believe I hadn't seen it until now. For, first of all, thanks for bringing up something retro. That's awesome. Um, quick question for you: Did did you buy it? Did you see it on a certain streaming service? Like, where did you see it? I watched it on Amazon. I think I have like a what is it? I think the Stack TV free trial or something on Amazon Prime. Gotcha. Okay, I'll, I'll try to hunt it down. So I have a tiny little story with that movie. Again, when it came out early two thousands. My dad had just bought for the first time like a super premium cable package that had like all the super channels. Um, I think I was only in grade 10 at the time. And I'll be honest, even though I was in grade 10, I was a very sheltered child. And so I just decided, okay, this looks cool. You know, turbo, you know, futuristic thriller, Jennifer Lopez. Let's turn this on on one of the brand new super channels. I remember like whether it was the first few minutes or 15 minutes or whatever, it scared the shit out of me as a kid. And so I turned it off. <laughs> and you basically reminded me of like, yeah, it could be cool. And now that I'm in my late thirties, you know, I can probably handle it, you know, the emotionally much better. Certainly I've seen much worse shit since then. Yeah, I would, I would definitely revisit. It was very, very, uh, very cool. And yeah, I, I can see, I can totally see how that would, uh, have the effect on you as uh, if you were younger. Cause like there is some, um, fairly like, I don't, I don't even know if graphic is the right word. There's definitely some gore, I mean, there's there's one point where Vince Vaughn's intestines are getting attached to a rod that Vincent D'Onofrio is twisting and wrapping up, like spooling up his intestines <laughs> out of his body for God's sake. Like it's great. Like it's got some good stuff. <laughs> that reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in a horror TV show of all time. It was Masters of Horror. Came out in the mid two thousands, and they did this uh, episode about a snuff film where some people killed an angel, like a literal angel with wigs. And it was so horrific to kill this like divine beauty that anyone who saw the video went insane. And this old German guy buys it. Uh, for some reason, I remember the actor. His name's Udo Kier. Uh, he was in a lot of kind of B-movie stuff. And he goes insane when the movie finishes. And he's like, I must have more movie film. I must have more movie film in a German accent. So he slits his belly, feeds his small intestines into the projector and watches his intestines <laughs> go by in the big screen as he keeps saying, I need more movie film spooling this shit in. It was just, I don't know. When you said that, it reminded me of that. Cool. Scene. Uh, that show also, there's an episode called dancing with the dead. And if you ever, even nowadays thought Brie Larson was not hot, then watch her in that episode because I tell you, I didn't know who that blonde was at the time, but I was like, I don't care if I have to kill 10,000 zombies to get to her. I'm getting to her. I think it was from 2006. <laughs> As you can see, the episode had an impact on my home. Yeah, clearly. I mean, myself. <laughs> so, uh, second banter will be second quickest. And this one I've got to give a shout out to Liz, our last uh, guest host there. Um, the SEG strike is over. And yes, finally, and Liz and I were actually going back and forth uh, on it over email um, because it seemed like the studios had given what they called their best last final offer, like final everything. Who knows what happens if the actors turn it down? 
but they did not. Now, unfortunately, this is very, very recent, like two days ago, and I'm not, I don't have all the details together on what the actors gave up or what the studios gained or what the actors gained. It appears there's still some questions over the AI portion of things, but I, I think the the important point is that uh, the strike is over. The writers have already, you know, ended their strike. So, like, we're back into production. Now, apparently, it's going to be quite a gap. Bob Iger from Disney was saying, like, we need to absolutely rush to do a summer slate. So, like, not we need to absolutely rush to get things out in, like, February or March. But, like, you know, we got to rush even for summer of 2024, which I think is understandable. You know, but we'll see where this goes. Disney certainly hasn't been hitting it out of the park, foreshadowing number two, but uh, we'll get there shortly. So that that's my second banter. And I do want to throw a shout out to, to Liz for helping with sending various links and, um, you know, her, her own uh, feedback, which really boils down, if I understand what she wrote correctly, that she's still concerned about the AI protections. Okay. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So do you have a second banner? Yeah, my second can be a little short and sweet because I haven't finished the game yet, but I have been playing Alan Wake 2 uh, after 13 years since the original came out. We finally get the sequel set 13 years after the events of the original game. I'm I'm really liking it so far. It feels a lot like the first one, just kind of, you know, obviously updated with a little more polish. Um, there are some interesting aspects of it that... At first, I wasn't sold on. Like, I mean, honestly, at first, I hated. And then it kind of started to grow on me and became less obtrusive. Um, so this game is kind of split between two narratives. Uh, Saga Anderson is an FBI agent you play as, and eventually you play as Alan Wake himself, right? And they're kind of like coinciding narratives that you can switch switch from either character and, and play like in any order. Like, you could play as much as Alan as you wanted, before you play any of Saga, right? Um, a after a certain point, after a certain time, you get into the game, right? And like Saga has like this, basically, it's like it's her version of like a mind palace. So you go into this this like office, and then you have like um, you know a a, pl a bullet a plot board where you have like the details of the case, and there's a bunch of different case folders, and you you literally like you'll find when you find evidence in the game. It'll be like a, a a Polaroid that you'll go pin onto this board in the Mind Palace, right? So there's inter it's kind of this interactive thing that you do as the you know plot and story is progressing. It's like you're it's essentially you're keeping track of what's going on and what has happened. But I don't feel like it adds much. Uh, I'm not I don't get much out of it. It's just like it's just it's it's literally just a chore that I have to do. <laughs> I, I I don't understand. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe. It'll have more significance later in the game. It's just, it's interesting. I don't know. It just feels like it's there so she has something to do. And then, like, Alan has something similar, which I like a lot more. Because, like, the whole shtick of the first game is his writing is coming true. But he doesn't remember what he wrote in that first game. He doesn't realize, like, you find pages of manuscripts around the world that is basically telling you something that's going to happen later into this game. Um, like this brief description of something that's going to happen. And at first he doesn't quite realize that these are his words until he finally has, it dawns on him, right? And as, as you progress through the story of that game and you realize 
that the this entity called the darkness is trying to like come back into the world and have a greater influence upon it and the events of the first movie or first movie and events of the first game is you stopping it right and now that is now the darkness is back and it's all starting to happen again and uh in pretty similar ways too is is the other thing it's like a lot of it feels like it's repeating itself but now we have this kind of other perspective from saga that is really the only thing that seems to be changing things up but at least from what i've played which is probably about four or five hours uh i'm it's fun it's cool the combat is still fairly basic just like in the first one i think really it's it's more about enjoying the story elements of it and i hate to admit it i am playing this game on hard i'm almost to the point of regretting playing it on hard and i should have just had it on the normal difficulty of course you should have yeah well i knew you said <laughs> but just <laughs> i just like it's like probably it's probably one of those games where you don't really need to worry about the extra difficulty because the combat is fairly shallow and that's where the extra that's where all of the extra challenges on the extra difficulties i don't think it's actually necessary for this this game this type of experience that you know uh they clearly want to tell the story they want to tell with the game probably not needed so i might dial it back just so i think it would help me enjoy the game a little more now some games nowadays have dynamic difficulty level where you can switch it part way through in fact i may be wrong about this i think re4 make might have been one of those is there the potential in Alan Wake 2 for you to just to literally in the moment with your save file dial it back to normal or will you have to restart? Mm, I don't know. I hope so. I mean, if there isn't, I'm not going to restart. Like, it's not that big a deal. Like, there's been a few. There's probably only I can only think of two moments where I was getting a little frustrated with um, certain sections, particularly on Alan's sections, because it seems like his arsenal is is less like he has less firepower, it seems, overall than what Saga gets access to. but. It's not going to ruin the game for me if I can't do it, right? Like, I'll just persevere and, <laughs> you know, put my head down and charge through the difficulty, the difficult sections of it. Okay, well, that's cool. Keep me posted. I may uh, end up digging into those at some point. Uh, Ghost Marty told me that he actually thinks I would appreciate those games, at least the first one. So, yeah, it's it's actually on my radar. My final banter is kind of a rant, but I won't go on too long because I've ranted about it here before. But, like... I don't know how else to summarize what I'm about to say, except that I'm just pretty much done with Kickstarter. So this week I had uh, Kickstarter delivered to me the finished goods for FPS. It is called FPS First Person Shooter, the definitive FPS documentary. Um, I heard about it on YouTube a few years ago. Uh, Just a bunch of channels on video games I watched were were saying they were going to be part of it. They interview a lot of important people like John Romero, John Carmack, uh, Tom Hall, you know, people like that that were involved critically in first person shooter. It's a, I haven't started watching. It's like 250 minutes. So when they see definitive documentary for one movie, like it's definitive. But my complaint, as always, is the immortal manufacturer, because I don't know if it's companies not doing their research on who's going to manufacture the goods or they just don't care, or they're just going with whoever's cheapest. But my goodness, the quality of the packaging is horrific. I mean, I I almost, I have it here. If I point it up to the camera, listener's not going to see, Leland's going to see, but it's not going to show any detail. But it's like very cheap, paper-thin cardboard. 
is with the Blu-ray is in. I don't know if there's any way I can remove the Blu-ray without destroying this cover, like at least putting like a tear in it. It also came with some uh, posters, which perhaps overseas they make posters smaller, but they were basically like 11 inch by 17 legal paper. And some of the worst printing I've ever seen. The colors are so dark that I actually, my first thought in looking at it was, do I have a printer error on my posters? Like, did they accidentally bleed too much ink in? But then when I looked closer, I could see, and it didn't take a lot of looking closer, but I could see like pixels everywhere. And I'm like, really? You you just like stretched out a JPEG to an 11 by 17, slapped some adhesive on the back, and you're selling it as a poster? Now, again, in this case, I don't necessarily want to blame the creators of the documentary, but ultimately they have to be responsible if this is the quality they found. And I just feel without necessarily having ironclad proof that these Kickstarters just don't seem to care about the physical products that release or their quality too much. It's an issue I've had many times before. It's, It's just very disappointing too. Like it came with some stickers and it's like, They're not even glossy, like they don't shine at all. They're like paper, again, with adhesive on the back. I almost threw them in the garbage. I had them in my hand, then I put them back on the table. I'm like, maybe I can use these elsewhere in the future. It's just so disappointing. And like, you know, when you're spending like 125 bucks on a glorified Blu-ray, just because you want to be in and support the project or whatever, maybe it was on 125, it was like 75, but it's not worth it. Leland, it's not worth it. And I don't know if you still Kickstarter, like Leland, are you having this issue with manufacturer quality or is it just me? And I'm unlucky. I mean, I I don't Kickstarter anymore. Um, Okay. I I don't know. Maybe you're just unlucky. I mean, obviously I've, so I've never Kickstarted outside of the realm of board games. So that's really all my, where my experience lies. But I I mean, like, yeah, we've beat this dead horse a number of times. I really think, yes, I agree with you at the end of the day, it is, the uh the creator's uh responsibility and they take the blame ultimately for the final quality of the final product but it starts with uh the platform itself of kickstarter that the the platform itself has just become this type of uh gamified platform where the project creators really do need to offer all this extra shit as incentive to help make sure they hit their funding and it, it's like it it needs to be baked into the project, right? Right, almost from the get go to to be successful. So all this auxiliary shit that really is just like is like you said, borderline throwaway crap that doesn't really matter for what you the you know the the core of the project. Uh, it's just it's just the way crowdfunding works. I mean, I I, I really don't think it, I think it's crowdfunding in general now, right? So be, the expectation has been set. Even if it's not on the platform of Kickstarter itself, I think there's now this this expectation with people who are familiar with crowdfunding and how crowdfunding generally works uh, to be successful in it. Yeah, what grinds my gears a little bit too, and this is unrelated to this current project, but I'm seeing more and more paid advertisements for Kickstarters on uh, whether it's YouTube, social, you know, all sorts of social media, online websites. It's like, okay. Don't don't bullshit me here. Don't call me a fool. If you're kickstarting, which means you need investors to to get off the ground, 
to, to, to get your initial project going, then don't pre-spend a bunch of money on advertising saying, well, I guess we got to spend money to make money. Like, it, to, I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. To me, it looks wrong. Like, to me, Kickstarter is a service for people that can't get funding any other way except grassroots fans. So to me, there's a little bit of desperation, which never bothered me. You know, but and again, I could be wrong that it's, you know, this choice of last resort, but I don't like seeing them advertising when they're asking for money. That makes no sense to me, but I'm seeing it more and more and more. I, I don't know. I mean, I also think that it is also part of the way uh, the specific, again, the specific platform of Kickstarter uh, works because the <laughs> uh, more things we've, we've talked endlessly about, but the visibility section on Kickstarter is awful the search function of kickstarter is fucking terrible if you don't know the exact name of the project you will never find it by trying to use the search search bar it's just it's it's bad it's just not good and i think because the plat like the creators are forced to use other avenues everything at their disposal to drive the traffic specifically to the you know their kickstarter page you're not going to find it on the home page of kickstarter unless you happen to luck into getting to be uh, one of the, you know, the top 10 recommended of Kickstarter or whatever. And I don't even know, I don't even know how that's assessed or how that actually, I have no idea how that works. How would, how would you even go about attempting to be in the highlighted section? I, I don't even know how, I don't know. I'm just so far removed from Kickstarter these now um, and have been for a number of years. All right. Well, on that note, let's, uh, let's go into something potentially even more miserable with our first segment. <laughs> movie musings uh this segment called lost in the force uh listener very simple thing we're gonna do here almost cookie cutter for us but in a good way i hope both leland and i have watched ahsoka season one on disney plus star wars and we are going to review it so as is typical uh we're going to give our opening thoughts each of us non-spoilery uh, then we will make a spoiler warning, dive into specifics on characters' plots, what we like, what we didn't like. Finally, we're going to review the series out of 10. With that, I guess, since I'm leading us into this segment, I will lead in with, with my overall non-spoilery thoughts. This series, I could not help but get excited for. Grand Admiral Thrawn, it's no spoiler because he's been in all the trailers and whatnot. Grand Admiral Thrawn is one of my favorite, if not my single favorite of all Star Wars characters, good or bad. And I knew he was coming into the show. I love Star Wars Rebels. I prepped with my friend Joe by going through with him about three episodes a week, all of Rebels. I quite liked it. I think it's probably my favorite animation. I felt it improved a lot. So I was really looking forward to this. And the first two episodes were pretty good. I, I like the characters. I really like Sabine, Ren, especially. Uh, future wife. I'm taking applications if you're out there. <laughs> uh, Natasha Lee <laughs> Bordizo, probably not going to take me up on that. But um, yeah, I thought it was good. I, I thought we saw some unexpected cameos from a few rebel characters that was good. But then the show didn't really go anywhere. It goes to a planet. And I mean, you got to remember nowadays shows are like eight episodes. So you go to a planet and you're there for like three episodes and it's like, okay, let's, let's get going. And you're like, okay, this has got to pick up and have like, you know, end in like three 90 minute episodes where it's all balls to the walls. 
but nothing really happens. In fact, through the entire season, in my opinion, a few characters just switch spots. Now, it's not like things are not necessarily in motion, but looking at this season in a vacuum, very little happens. Uh, the casting is good overall. We'll get into more specifics later. Um, there's not necessarily anyone I don't like who is casted. I don't like some of the performances. Uh, I think, unfortunately, Rosario Dawson as Ahsoka, uh, what I want to say could potentially be a spoiler, so I don't want to throw that in there. But I felt like she did not do a good job of acting as Ahsoka naturally would. Now, I get it, Ahsoka's a lot older than we see her in animation, but she was like a bubbly, expressive kind of personality. And if there's one thing Rosario Dawson is in the show, it is not expressive and dynamic. Good spots, listener. I, I felt that Thrawn, other than some of his decisions, which are literally the most important thing he does in the entire show, I thought his acting was good. I thought Lars Mikkelsen was fine. The, the standout for me would be Ezra Bridger. Ezra is just fantastic. I don't know the name of the actor off the top of my head. I thought he was great as far as his mannerisms and acting. One of the most important characters nails it. Um, but other than the performance, the show doesn't really go anywhere. There's a lot of questionable plot decisions. And, you know, it, it, it reminds me one time I actually went to a speech in downtown Vancouver by Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street. The problem was when everybody showed up, all he did was spend the time that he had where he showed up late selling another much more expensive three-day seminar. He didn't actually talk about anything that you would want to hear. He just did a sales pitch for something more expensive. <laughs> that is how I could define Ahsoka. It's Disney saying, hey, welcome to our ballroom. Have a seat. Okay, okay, we're going to give you a slight preview of what may happen with our Star Wars in the next five years. But yeah, we're not going to do anything right now. That I've spent long enough on my opening remarks. That's me. Leland? What have you got? Um, I think I, I mean, I, I agree with uh, pretty much everything you're saying. It's like, you know how at the the airport they have the those um, walking paths that are the essentially the long ass treadmills that are moving, right? It's like everybody's on one of those. Sometimes they're moving in the direction that it's supposed to move, but other times they're turning around and trying to walk against it, so they're not making any ground. And ultimately, they kind of end up in the same spot that we started at you know like i mean obviously physically they're in different spots it doesn't even really feel like as character growth wise even like i feel like sabine didn't grow as a character at all ultimately she remains pretty selfish throughout the whole the whole uh season i don't know i don't i don't i don't feel like she i mean she the character of sabine ren had Far more growth in Rebels than, you know, in in Ahsoka at all. And very quickly, this season did not feel like it earned to be called Ahsoka. Like, it could have been, it literally could have been called Rebels Continued. You know what I mean? Like, it could have been anything else. Oh, 100%. It, it would have felt like it fit more as a title for it. So I, I don't, I don't know. Like so quickly, Ahsoka did not become the focus at all. Yeah. It, it's really weird because, you know, 
uh, Book of Boba Fett went down that same path with the two episodes where surprisingly the best episodes where they went, uh, you know, with Luke and Boba Fett wasn't even part of it. It kind of felt like this. Like, I, I don't get what it is with Disney writers. They only have eight episodes to write with these amazing characters, but they somehow can only write content for half of a season. I, I get the feeling like if a season was four episodes long, they could only write two good episodes. If the season was 20 episodes <laughs> long, they could somehow write 10, but they can't write eight for eight. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's it's really it's really just disappointing. I don't even know if I'm angry. I'm just deflated overall. And you're so right about Sabine's growth, like that they show in Rebels, which is great. I almost interrupted you, which I shouldn't do and I didn't do, but I almost said like, you could make an argument Sabine regressed with some of her late season decisions, withholding key bits of information that no true friend would ever hold. Part of the problem was, and I watched every episode with my friend Joe, is that we wanted to be apologists for the show, but we couldn't be. There are just certain things that this show does that cannot be apologized for. They, they just don't make sense other than the context of lazy writing, in my opinion. Honestly, the this 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 one kind of confounds me a little bit because like when when with the book of Boba Fett, like book of Boba Fett sucked. Other than the three episodes that Mando showed up, it wasn't. It just wasn't good. It wasn't enter. It wasn't even entertaining. Ahsoka is still entertaining to me. Like I still enjoyed quite a bit of what was there, but I feel like it just could have been better. It could have been so much better. It could have been on the level of Rebels. It could easily have been on the level of Rebels. Well, and, and think like, okay, Boba Fett was, you know, a cool looking character and stuff, but there really wasn't much backstory to work with. There wasn't fertile ground. But because you had Rebels, which was very well liked, and you had four seasons of it, that you had fertile ground for Ahsoka and all these characters. You could have put them in so many cool and different directions, but they didn't. And I just, I don't understand, for the most part, because there are parts I really like to this show. I want to make that that clear. Unfortunately, the parts I like to the show, I can't really explain in the non-spoilery section, which mm -hmm. is why I sound so negative. There are good parts of this show, listener, in particular, one episode that diverges from the primary storyline in a surreal sense that was my favorite episode of the entire season. But... What is this with Disney? It's like, to get the good story, we have to go to the side story we never meant to tell. <laughs> and then you'll have the good story. It's like, no, just just take that story and make that the main story. It's just frustrating. What I would have preferred for an Ahsoka series is to see the time between Rebels and Ahsoka. I would have wanted to see Ahsoka and more of Ahsoka and Sabine off being Jedi Master and Padawan in whatever they got up to, you know, and then of course at the beginning of Ahsoka, they were they've had a falling out already. I would have rather have seen the falling out. Uh, I think. I mean, I <laughs> maybe not. Maybe you got to be careful what you wish for. But I feel like that would have been stronger for an Ahsoka titled series. Yeah, I I think so too because I think what you're you're trying to point the direct what you're trying to say, and you may not even realize this consciously, but you have mentioned it already in this segment. The, the Ahsoka show is not really about Ahsoka. Not, not directly. Like, like She by no means is the main character of this show for most of it. 
there's part of me that just goes, what the hell are we doing here? Like, why are you calling it Ahsoka when it's not Ahsoka, when it's really Rebels Season 5, just in live action, and we know it? I mean, I wish it was Rebels Season 5 live action. Yeah. This is the problem. Even in Rebels, what did Ahsoka really have to do with Thrawn in Rebels? Ahsoka was in, like... In like season two, she was prominent in season two or Rebels or whatever. We see her a bit in the in season in the last bit of four in Rebels, but other than that, like it's really like Hera. Hera's relationship with Thrawn is far more interesting. Like all the shit that she that she the conflict that she went up against Thrawn with is way more interesting than anything we saw anybody else deal with Thrawn in this series. Like, what does Ahsoka really have to do? With Thrawn and even like Ezra's disappearance in general, she's disconnected from it. Exactly, because they're the other people from Rebels are the people that should most care for Ezra and most want to risk themselves for him. Not really Ahsoka. And by the way, thank you for bringing up Hera because I don't know if it was just poor casting. I mean, I love, we love. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, personally, we've loved her our entire adult life. Would it be wrong, Leland, for me to say she's been miscasted as Hera? Is that too extreme? I mean, it's either it's either miscasting or, I mean, a lot of the writing, the dialogue in particular, is just flat as hell in this oh, whole yeah. series. Filoni cannot write dialogue. He can't. He's just like he's terrible master. at it. He's awful. Just like George Lucas, he can't do it. And no. but he wants to do this like spaced out, almost drugged out, like three second pause between whenever his means do. Like I could write a Filoni scene right now between you and Leland. Here, here's the script, listener. I'm typing the script with my words. Moby crosses arms, peers at Leland for five seconds, says, "Leland." Should we continue with this segment? Leland then crosses arms, looks at Moby, <laughs> three second pause. Yes, Moby, it shall be good to continue. <laughs> no, it's more like, I don't know. Should we? Should we? Maybe we should. <laughs> so Perhaps. True. You're right. We should. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> come on, dude. Die. Leland, you need to give a spoiler warning. It's 25% of the <laughs> oh, show. Oh, shit, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it is. That's, I'm so sorry. That's a quarter of the show. Every single bit of dialogue in the show. <laughs> Should we continue to where all our friends are through the only way we believe is possible? I don't know. What do you Perhaps. think? Perhaps. Maybe we can wait on a dead planet that has nothing. It's just like, it's infuriating because like, it seems so, like, how do they not notice what they're making? How do they not notice what they're writing? You know, speaking of the, what's just striking me right now is hilarious is the best character that the best written character is Huang. His David Tennant's performance as Huang is standout. <laughs> the robot is the more, is the most human sounding character yes. in this fucking entire show. Like, come on. You are a hundred percent correct, Leland. That, <laughs> so that is so true. We've talked about this, but I never like really put it together that he's also a robot just because David Tennant is so great. Yeah. You're he's right. So good. The it. one consistently fantastic <laughs> character this entire show is the fucking robot. Who's a 25,000 year old crusty old man <laughs> robot. And he's the best. 
Yeah. So what does yeah, that say? It's really good. It's really good. Yeah. I think we got to break the spoilers. I, I, yeah, I think so too. We're, we're just going to kind of grind our gears here if we don't get into spoilers. Cause I, yeah, there's lots of like specific things that I want to talk about for sure. And a lot, and some of them are, are, I really like, right? Like, yes. Um, like yeah. I say, it's just like, it's just going to, I don't know. How do we always do this? Especially with Star Wars. I, I do actually enjoy a lot of Star Wars content. It's just, Me there's too. so much, it's so easy to be negative about it. Honestly, by the sounds of it, like it sounds like we're on a track to rate it below a five, like a four or a three. But that's not where I stand with this, you know. To me, Star Wars, Star Wars is like you know, a parent gives someone a Ferrari, a kid they're a Ferrari, but they lock it into gear one somehow, and so it's like you know, there's so much more engine under the hood. I think that's the problem. Would I still enjoy driving a Ferrari on gear one or two? Sure, of course I would. Would I much rather enjoy that Ferrari if it maximizes its potential? Much more. And I think that's why we bitch about Star Wars. In a way, it's a credit to Star Wars. We know what it can be on those rare moments. It truly strives to maximize its potential. But we're seeing poor writing and plot choices and to a degree poor casting that makes us start with the negatives. But you know what? As we're moving into spoilers, let's move into some positives because I think we both have them, Leland. So what are positive or two that uh you like positive for me is probably all the fight choreography i thought the fight they were uh, um very well done it's like it just feels like the you know it's less of which is funny because it's moving away from like clone war style lightsaber duels and it's more like calculated and and thoughtful movements and strong powerful movements rather than like almost like frantic flailing so it's less acrobatic feeling, but I think that fit, especially when we see Balin fighting, like the the yes. way that Bal yes. like Balin is, he look just every his presence on screen is just so powerful feeling, and it comes out when he's fighting. I think I mean I like Ahsoka's duel, you know, lightsabers. Uh, it's 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 fun to watch. Um, it's exciting to watch. We get a lot of lightsaber duels in this like there's a lot of times i think balin and ahsoka they clash at least twice maybe even three times without either of them dying maybe it's only twice but <laughs> i guess ahsoka almost dies when she gets knocked off the cliff right like she's she's pretty damn close like she she's definitively lost that fight but it feels like there's a lot of lightsaber dueling without major casualties <laughs> Yeah, and and I don't like this new thing where like lightsabers can they're somehow like create horrific wounds, but also easy to heal wounds, mm -hmm. and easy to survive wounds. Yeah, you know, it didn't used to be that way. Like in the original series, and even through the prequels, like any lightsaber hit had gravitas. You know, it had major damage, and characters rarely took them because of that damage. I think. Ahsoka, as well as some recent Star Wars have moved into, you know, you can take, yeah, like I said, horrific lightsaber injuries and survive it. I agree with you on the fight choreography, but that's not my favorite. Um, my favorite, as I've alluded to in the non-spoilery section, was one episode that actually went into the Clone Wars. It was a flashback, and it involved a, a new actress. Apologies, listener, I, I should have, but I did not prep with her name just because that's the only thing I've seen her in. But they have Ahsoka. Thankfully, they do not they do not de-age her. They've got a great teenage actress who plays her. Honestly, plays her the way, in my opinion, she should have been played, with more energy that Rosario Dawson doesn't have. 
And the weirdest thing is they bring back Hayden Christensen, and that is some of the best Hayden Christensen is Anakin that I've ever seen in that flashback episode. And my friend Joe, who I mentioned previously, does not like Hayden Christensen and does not like Anakin as a character at all outside of the Clone Wars animation. And the irony is, is that by Hayden Christensen working in or mimicking Matt Lantner, who was the voice actor of Anakin in animation, who was thus trying to mimic Hayden Christensen's performance in the prequels, <laughs> somehow that weird circular dynamic makes Hayden Christensen do his best Anakin. He is fantastic. I mean, I have zero criticisms of him. The nuance of his performance as a quote-unquote good guy hero, I think it almost speaks to his younger fans that grew up with the prequels thinking he's such a hero. Because through Ahsoka's eyes, you see that like, yeah, he's a hero to the old Republic during this time. He's a warrior. He's brave. He's really good at fighting. But he's bloodthirsty. He's sociopathic. He doesn't care really about who he's killing. He's like, I don't know. We're at war. Just start killing people. But like his delivery on his lines is great. All that stuff. Because one thing I hope is Disney continues this with Anakin. Anakin is not some white knight wearing a shimmering robe who took a wrong turn down a dirt path for five minutes, okay? He he is whiny, he is selfish, he is violent, he cannot control his impulses. I mean, I could go down a huge list. He, he is an anti-hero in the truest sense, at best. Or else, doom, just a person doomed to be a villain, not at most, but like just regularly. That's, that's how I would see him. And, and the show does a good job of that. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, no, I agree. That, that was a very uh, strong episode uh, for sure. And that's like, that episode is where we get um, like growth from Ahsoka too as, as a character. Yes. Because it's clear like after the falling out with her, between her and Sabine, like she's definitely hardened. She's become this cold, like colder um, type character, right? That we see at the beginning of the, the season. Young uh, Ahsoka was played by Ariana Greenblatt, who also played young Gamora in Infinity War. She just got to keep playing young, cool. Obviously, yeah. She better hurry up because she's 16 already. She's going to quickly age out of that stuff. But she better hurry the hell up. But yeah, I thought she she was great too. I mean, you didn't get to see much, but like it was enough. Like what what she had with the performance, like she she used very well, obviously. It was cool seeing seeing Anakin be kind of, again, like, yeah, it was really like his Clone War animation self like we saw. And I think Anakin in general is just like, incredibly impressionable he will he can be very easily persuaded to either side and ultimately either side of the force obviously as you know you know the <laughs> you know his history but like we get to see the both the flashes of vader too right when when he's there yeah. and like he seems like okay he's, he's clearly here to help ahsoka and then but they're also fighting and you know she gets a kick on him or whatever it was and you see that the flash of the dark side kind of thing it was all really cool it was very i mean maybe calling it cerebral is giving it way too much justice but like as far as star wars goes it was it was fairly cerebral right yeah. i mean obviously all of this is was it it wasn't entirely clear if it was happening in ahsoka's subconscious or if this was some type of you know a force centric vision or 
or at force force astral projection like because nobody knows how the force works it could be anything <laughs> could be anything you could be some fucking owl god which is in the show basically it could be i well he's not going to be that because ahsoka has that owl god inside her but you know you're right there's a lot of craziness there yeah i think he nailed the head i, I think that nailed the hit the nail on the head that that was a great statement um you know about anakin being very impressionable um, I think basically the strongest personalities took advantage of him. He could best be summed up by the movie Zoolander with David Duchovny. But why male models? Because, Derek, they're impressionable and do what they're told. That's not true. Yes, it is, Derek. Okay. So that's Anakin right there. That little exchange from Zoolander. <laughs> Derek would have made a perfect Padawan. Derek Zoolander. Yeah, he would have. He would have. So tell me, uh, Moby. <laughs> now anybody can use the force right apparently now and apparently the moment it could take you 35 years to get there but if you have no talent the moment you want the talent you can throw someone 50 feet into a star destroyer hangar bay so <laughs> that, that happens yeah, in the show I, just... <laughs> I, I hate that i hate that i don't it's like it's really that. I don't frustrating like it. it's really really frustrating that's like two two really frustrating things about Sabine is like she is just stupidly selfish. Um, it, I mean, I know I get it. Like, all, clearly she's very lonely. She she probably she feels like she's been abandoned or lost everyone and everything. You know, I, I mean, Ahsoka by by all accounts, it's it's portrayed as Ahsoka just completely giving up on her, uh, or I guess they're giving up on each other. Maybe is more more accurate, but. Like so, did Ahsoka take Sabine as the apprentice because Ahsoka felt she was force sensitive, or is Sabine learning to be force sensitive because she's now a Padawan? Like it's a chicken or the egg. Like what? I the think fuck? it's the latter, but I disagree with that. And there's apologists that say apparently George Lucas had a line one time, and it's recorded where he said, "You know, oh, everybody has the force in them, but you know, some people have more talent, some people don't." And the show goes a weird direction with it. Because they have a part where Hu Yang says she's literally the worst person in 25,000 years he's ever seen considered as a Padawan. And then she has like full on pretty full powers by the space of the final episode, you know, of this show. And yeah. no, that makes no sense. It's like on one side, they're like, she has 0.00001% force in her to like minimize it. And on the other hand, it's like, oh, by her sheer will, she can shed that handicap and be powerful. And like, th that's just not realistic. Like if you have very, say you have very low athleticism, like if you work hard, could you maybe run a very below average hundred meter dash or something? Okay, sure. Maybe like after a lot of work, but you're not going to fucking win that at the Olympics which is kind of what Ahsoka portrays. It's like, yeah. and, and what was disappointing about that was throughout the show, they're showing Sabine trying to use the force and she's failing. And I liked that. I liked where I thought they were going with that because I thought by episode, you know, seven or eight, Sabine's growth would be, she discovers she can't do the force no matter how much she trains and she's just going to use her fighting skills and her Mandalorian prowess and, you know, move on. And that would be some growth. But nope, they have to give her the force at the end. Uh, but it's not even a little force. I, I, I wouldn't mind if the very end was her 
moving a teacup two inches so that she, you know it shakes and she could grab it, showing like she had like literally that minimal amount of force, but not what they give her. It, it's it, it is really ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. It's frustrating. So like if if there would be if there was one person in the Star Wars across the entirety of the Star Wars universe to be have the to to be able to go about wanting to develop force abilities it would be fucking admiral thrawn he is a singular force of will that is his thing yes. if there was yes. one person if, if it was possible to be like i'm going to develop force abilities thrawn could do it in a heartbeat if he wanted to that's the discipline that's how disciplined he is as a character right a like point. it doesn't make it's, it's a great so, point it's so stupid it's so dumb it's so fucking frustrating <laughs> Well, and before we jump into Thrawn, let's just finish with Sabine here because she's a big part of this. And Leland, why did she not tell Ezra that like how they came to the planet and that Thrawn is there spooling up the Chimera Star Destroyer, got a ring there ready to bring him back to the galaxy? That makes no sense. That could be the single stupidest decision in all of Star Wars for me. Is that Sabine on multiple locations for hours and hours, if not days, doesn't tell Ezra what's going on. And he asks. That's the weird thing, too. It just drives me nuts. I don't understand that. I like I don't not for fun, under, like not understand it. I literally don't understand it. No, that yeah, that is because it literally does not make sense that they wouldn't have that conversation. Like, what is Sabine's plan then? Like, yeah. She agrees to become the captive so she can get onto the the known way to get to Ezra. Now, obviously, that is, again, that's part of, like, her her loneliness and her desperation to get her family back, right? It's part of the characterization of her that we've seen up until that point. And that decision is understandable to do it, right? She uh, uh, And she thinks Ahsoka just got killed by Balin, of course. So, like, that is understandable. But then when she gets there, what's the plan? She's going to live there with Ezra forever? <laughs> and, and hope Thrawn fucks off without them? Like, what the... What what else... What is she thinking? What the... What could possibly be advantageous about keeping Ezra completely in the dark about about the, the way she got there, everything else that's going on, about Ahsoka being dead, as far as she knows, about there being zero backup coming for them. Like, why would she, why would that not be part of it? I, I don't know. And one of the weirdest things is like, so Ezra, listener, if you're still listening to the spoilery stuff and not seeing the show, Ezra lives with these cute turtle aliens that can walk around and they basically have RVs, like floating RVs. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the fact is they <laughs> so have vehicles. Stupid. They, they, they have vehicles. And what I think is weird is like Sabine could have immediately told Ezra what's going on. And then he could be like, oh, wow, you know, we, we got to somehow stop Thrawn. I don't know how we're going to do this. Let's jump in these vehicles and like head towards him, which they kind of do anyways. But it just would make so much sense if they were doing that with a purpose. And <laughs> there's just so little purpose in the late part of this show. I mean, it just drives me nuts. Like, I mean, Sabine has acted decently. Certainly, actor. Certainly, the actress looks like her, which I guess is a plus. But like, she just oh, the decisions and the writing is just so stupid. 
I mean, it, it really felt like they needed to pad in an extra episode on the other side of the galaxy or something like, you know, like, because really it could have been, it should have been like two episodes. Like we, we see, you know, Ahsoka get in the mouth of the space whale at the end of one episode. Okay, great. Then like the next episode can be Sabine finding Ezra. Okay, awesome. Then the one after that is Ahsoka finding them because it certainly was easy for her to do so, right? Uh, and then, okay, then that second episode of The Men of the Planet could have been the finale then. Really? I don't know. It, uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking it felt longer than it actually was as far as episode count goes because I, I don't know what, what was what episode really. Especially watching it week to week because that was another thing that I don't usually do. I was watching it and I wasn't going to, but I was watching it week you know, weekly as it was being put out, uh, which I fucking hate. I just hate that. But I don't know if that, <laughs> I don't know if that helped my experience with the show or, or what. I don't know. Jury's out on that one, but. Yeah, I mean, honestly, what I think kind of helped you in a way is knowing that I was watching it and we could eventually talk about it informally yeah. and here. I think that that helped a little bit. I mean, I guess, you know, we've, we've discussed Ahsoka a bit and Rosario Dawson. We can loop back to that if you want later, but. I mean, and I think we've talked on Hera potentially being miscast because she's flat. The good news is for me, from here on, there's a lot of positives when it comes to characters and acting. I mean, I want to move into the elephant of the room, which is Thrawn. Lars Mikkelsen, obviously the only person to ever play him canonically. He voice acted Thrawn also in Rebels. I thought he was very good. He got criticism for having what I consider a slight gut. Maybe I didn't notice it until I saw these comments after the first episode that he was in. I literally just, he just looked like a 70 year old Admiral in his white Admiral suit, grand Admiral suit. His delivery's great. His acting's great. His nonverbal acting's great. My problem with Thon, my only problem is that, you know, he's got like a limited amount of men and he'll sacrifice a third of them. And he'll, <laughs> I think I made you laugh with this. I'm repeating a joke from our texting conversation, but he's like, you know, we cost Ahsoka two hours. It was well worth 30% of our forces. It's like, <laughs> wait, no, it wasn't. Like that, that delay is Ahsoka <laughs> slaughters, you know, your best last troops. No, that's not a, that's not worth it. Thrawn. I'm sorry, but I, I like him otherwise. Yeah, I, I agree too. I mean, it's just, it's just so, awesome he like just be able to hear you know the voice that you've only ever heard for thrawn right and just to see um like i thought he looked like thrawn uh, i yeah. i guess when i first saw him i thought oh he looks he, he like his body shape is obviously different than what he was animated as because unless unless the character is meant to be fat they're not animated as having a little bit of extra weight. You know what I mean? Like that's not really how right. animation yeah, absolutely. works. Like either the, the character is like slim or fit or they're like obese to accentuate how yeah. large they are. That's like that's so what, true, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. That, that's, that's like how animation works. So obviously his body shape is different than how he would have been animated as Thrawn. Like, of course, if Thrawn was supposed to be heavier, you would have been looking at me like, oh, Thrawn looks like he lost some weight on this new planet, yeah. right? Like, it would be the way around. <laughs> that, that's so true. That's so true. Um, you're right. And even just thinking back to Rebels, it's so much like that. Just even the animation style, it's like you're either rail thin and wiry as fuck or else you're, you know, a big chunky heavy. And Thrawn mm -hmm. wasn't that. And he's not, he's not a big chunky heavy in Ahsoka either. He's 
I consider him just an average 70 year old man. He's a 70 year old man in real life and in the show though. Like this is the thing I think some fans didn't understand when they're bleeping off on the comment section. Lars Mikkelsen is age appropriate to play Thrawn at the spot in his life. Like they're not, they're not fudging things around here. I mean, I just think people are, are, you're right. Probably comparing unfairly to animation with him. I just, you know, I felt that was, that was not a good, good criticism. I have a question. I have one. I have a question for you that I, I don't, I'm just confused on, I guess, or don't really understand the star map, right? The, the kind of the MacGuffin to kick everything off here. How, uh, how is this, this star map, how is the significance or the connection between it and Thrawn put together? Cause obviously Morgan knows that there is a connection because she's she wants it. Ahsoka knows she wants it. Ahsoka, you know, somehow got the the location of it out of her as she was taken a prisoner, right? Which we saw her taken prisoner in what, season one of Mandalorian? Is that when Ahsoka was it season one or was two? Uh to be honest, I forget. Yeah, I, I do too, but uh, obviously it was like a while ago since we saw Ahsoka's first appearance, right, in, in Mandalorian. I want to say season one because he still had the spear, right? Which, yeah, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, I, don't, I, I, I don't feel like Morgan had much to do in this. Um, I think she was cool in the last episode when she, you know, and and then also when the, the witches were raising the stormtrooper zombies that was sick that was awesome um very cool yeah the only thing that took me out of that was because all three of them are wielding lightsabers if there's one thing you would love to have in a zombie apocalypse it's probably a <laughs> lightsaber like cut them to sh- cut them to shreds like it's you're waving through nothing there's no res- there, there's no resistance as the lightsaber cuts through a human body like I, I completely agree, Leland. Leland, I saw that for what it is when I saw it, which is they're trying to preserve the PG rating at all costs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. I think they were worried if like limbs are flying, you know, they're they're going to get sanctioned. I don't agree with that. I mean, I agree the show. I think it would only put it at like a PG-13. I'm like, yeah, well, that's why PG-13 exists if you go to the history of it. Right. Yeah, I, I would have would have done that. Yeah, I mean, the zombies were cool. I liked that. I really liked the the Sisters of Dothmere. I mean, the zombies, unfortunately, the Stormtrooper zombies, you know, make the guy in his boxers going Bwains in Plants vs. Zombies look like Albert Einstein in comparison. But, uh, I mean, they're pretty fucking stupid zombies. But, yeah. you know, they're they're cool. They're cool. The idea of them is cool. And you're right, um, Elspeth. Uh, I, I liked bringing in the Dathomiri witches. I liked the idea that you know, the force is a force. It's not limited to this mystical energy that somehow ties just two sects of the galaxy together, which is light side, dark side, Jedi, Sith. I mean, they basically take the force and turn it into magic, into what we consider terrestrial witchcraft. And I love that. I, I really do. I've, I've got no problems with that. Same with Balin. I mean... Balin for me was one of the standout good characters in the show. Rest in peace, Ray Stevenson. I would have loved mm-hmm. three seasons of you. Yeah. The way he looks, the way he fights, you mentioned the fight where he knocks Ahsoka off the cliff. I mean, he is fighting like a Knights Templar with a giant longsword. Like it's just yeah. like brutish. 
there's not a lot of finesse. It's just like bang, bang. And actually, how he gets Ahsoka to the cliff is there's so much force in his strikes. She's blocking his strikes, but he literally concusses her to the edge <laughs> until he hits her off. It's awesome. Yeah. And Balin good. is not, he's not Jedi or Sith. He wants to create something new. And I'm like, thank you. Thank the Lord. Something new, something fresh. I mean, please recast him with like Leave Schreiber or something. That would be my pick. I think Leave Schreiber. Ooh, that would be cool. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we still don't know what he, what's he doing? Like, what does he want to get there? Like, he's got some other agenda, right? Like, clearly. Well, yeah. That, that, that's my problem with my, my guess being that, uh, JJ Abrams came in with his mystery box as like an unannounced consulting producer because you follow Balin and they tease you that he's trying to do something cool and literally tell you absolutely nothing of what he's going to do. Zero information. Like not even a hint. Zero. And it's just like, okay. Enough of a void of information where they don't ever have to acknowledge his character ever again now. And it pro it, it would be fine. (laughs) Like it it legitimately would be fine. (laughs) You know, because like we see Shin's Shin is now teaming up or taking over the fucking local raider tribe on this terrible planet. So like she has something that she can do now. They don't ever have to mention Balin ever again, right? They don't. They should, but you're right. They wrote him in a way that they actually don't, which is 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 frustrating. And unfortunately, like with Balin, all we can say is like he was awesome, had awesome fights. Ray Stevenson did a great job acting him, but because he doesn't go anywhere definitive, there's not much we can say about him. I mean, I think we're starting to sound like broken records regarding these characters, but I also think that's explaining to listener in a good way how we saw a lot of this show. Now, a character who, for obvious reasons, did not have a lot of time to develop, who was well done. I don't know if there's how much we can, you know, dive into him. What what did you think of, I think it's, Iman is fondy uh, as Ezra. Did you like Ezra? Did you not like Ezra? What do you feel? Um, I did. I did like Ezra. Uh, I thought it felt like it felt like, you know, we still got a touch of rebels Ezra, but clearly he's, he's changed, but like, he's still kind of the same young, like, I don't know. I don't know. He looks like his dad. He looks like his dad in the painting in rebels with the beard. Like he looks exactly like his dad. I liked him and I, I really liked when uh, he was fighting and just using force powers in the, yes you know, with, with the turtle people in their vehicles and getting, uh, when they were getting kind of surrounded, that was sick. But then his use of that stuff kind of went out the window as soon as he got a lightsaber in his hand, which, so explain, also explain to me now on Ahsoka's ship with Huang, it's the entirety of Jedi history and any artifacts from any single Jedi temple that ever existed are now on Ahsoka's ship where they can just build a lightsaber in the, you know, <laughs> snap of fingers if they want. He, Huang Pretty somehow much. still has the singular duplicate piece of this lightsaber that is meaningful <laughs> to Ezra. Like what, <laughs> what is going on? What is, what's happening? It's, it's, it's why, it's why Ahsoka named the ship, the USS Smithsonian. I mean, everything in it, all everything from history. I think Huang is what is holding Ahsoka back from being something uh, as interesting as Balin, as interesting as a character as Balin, because Ahsoka claims that she is living in the in-between of both sides of the force, like Balin is actually doing it, right? It's, it's It's like the difference between saying you are something and acting and doing 
what you are, right? Uh, obviously, Balin's actions are speaking far louder than Ahsoka's words. Uh, but I really think in other circumstances, the two of them would get along great and be like a great team. Uh, this kind of gray Jedi, yeah. you know, working in the in the in the in between both sides kind of thing. Well, I mean, yeah, and, and I think you bring up a good point because Hu Yang, if anything, is conservative. I mean, he's basically an old man droid, which makes sense because he's 25,000 years old. He's seen most of the entire Old Republic with his own eyes and circuits. And, you know, his programming is to preserve the Jedi in the old way. So that would make sense if it's only him and Ahsoka together that he's going to only push for her to stay Jedi, stay up with her Jedi arts, hopefully abandon what he would see as, you know, nonsense in trying to not be Jedi. So yeah, I, th- I think you make a good point there that I that I haven't considered. You know, the only problem is I don't want Hu Yang to leave the show because he's so cool. Well, yeah, exactly. He's one of the best parts. But like, what what are, what is a series like this trying to tell us about the Force and about being a Jedi? This is what confuses me so much. Because is the force, is the force actually balance? Is, you know, your use of the force ultimately going to end in balance, regardless of the way you use it, because somewhere else someone's going to be using it in the opposite way? Or, you know, like, were the the Jedi antiquated? Did they fall because of their antiquity and their ways? Or is it something that is worth keeping the record of in some, in a bot like Huang and the teachings of of the Jedi? Uh, like, is there value still there? Are we com- are we supposed to completely disregard it? Are we as the the viewer supposed to believe that the best way is the in between? We don't have an actual you know protagonist that shows us that way. Because again, I think Ahsoka is supposed to be that, but isn't. Yeah. I huh. I don't really know how to answer that because I think my most direct way to answer is that I honestly think the creators of the show ask questions that they didn't even know the answers to and probably still don't. That's the <laughs> right. sense that I get. It's an idea of like, okay, you know, we've got these cool characters. We're going to build something cool. We don't know who's going to direct it yet or show run it, but it's going to be cool. So like, we're going to create a very conservative season. Not a lot of people die. Not a lot happens, but yeah, we're just going to introduce a bunch of cool characters and just kick the can of the actual plot in answering any of these questions down the road. I mean, that's really the feeling that I got. Mm Mm-hmm. And and it's unfortunate because like I wanted Balin's story to at least know what he was going for. I wanted Thrawn to make it back to the real or the main galaxy. The fact that this show did not end with Chimera back over Dathomir and like blasting those three small rebel light cruisers or uh, Republic light cruisers out of space. I mean, that was teed up for them. <laughs> like they needed to just press the button and you would have hit a home run there as far as like a cool thing to end the season. But they don't do that. It's like so many doors open for them in this show, but they choose not to walk through these doors. And it's just, it's confounding to me on so many levels. I don't know, Leland, like I'm like you, I enjoyed it. There wasn't any episode I did not enjoy 
and some of the performances were pretty good, two thirds to three quarters. But you know, it's like uh, honestly, it's kind of like drinking, you know, diet soda if that's all you drank. Yeah, it's going to taste good at the very beginning when it touches your mouth, but you're getting no caloric benefit from it, no nutrition. So you can drink 10 cans or eight cans, watch eight episodes of Ahsoka, tasted good in the beginning, you know, not really going to remember it unless you're going to podcast on it a month (laughs) or two later. Right. You know, unfortunately, I think this this is creating a pattern for Disney because I think we're seeing this with Mandalorian to a degree. Certainly saw with Boba Fett. I don't know what that did. Obi-Wan didn't really leave us in a new place or have character growth. True. Especially. Yeah. Obi-Wan had a very similar vibe to this for me. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we're... I, I, honestly, it's it's like the confines of the storytelling, right? We're, we're in between these two eras of, you know, the films uh, is really what where they're playing with, it, with all these TV shows, right? And I, I think that... I don't know. Are they like maybe they're just struggling to maintain canon uh, in a way that you know still allows them additional flex room for the expansion of these different series. Like now we're just getting tendrils kind of going everywhere, right? And it, it, it's very much like the MCU. It's just there's so many there's so many different people that inevitably have to overlap or or impacts have to be felt in other places, but we don't always see that. We only see the impact of, you know, uh, events uh, happening when it's relevant to whatever movie or whatever TV series you're currently watching. Otherwise it's like they don't, it doesn't exist. Otherwise it may as well not even be a shared universe. Right? Yeah. And a good point on that is something I don't know how they're going to reconcile in the future. Okay. So Ahsoka sets the stage that the New Republic has become complacent. In fact, there's like a B-level story plot involving Mon Mothma. It's not a huge part of the season, but she's there with a few other senators. And they make it clear, number one, they're basically scrapping all the powerful Imperial ships. Like, I get it. They're a symbol of the enemy in this dark struggle. But like, they could have used these Imperial Star Destroyers. They talk about them stripping apart the Super Star Destroyers, which are really rare because that's how they build the Eye of Scion, is through like three or four stripped apart Super Star Destroyers. So, okay. So Rebels win the war. Then they become the New Republic. Then they make themselves voluntarily weak. And somehow in the space of a decade or so, Thrawn's going to come back, kick their ass. They're going to have to rebuild or band together, somehow defeat Thrawn. And then... In the short, like, 10-year time frame, they're going to have to go back to complacent and then have the First Order show up in Episode 7 and kick their ass again. It just doesn't make sense. It's too short <laughs> of a timeline so to That's do that. so true. That is so, so true. Yeah, because, I mean, w- Thrawn has to be vanquished by the time Force yes. Awakens gets around, right? Or he does. Of died of old age <laughs> or something Or, or something. But like, like what military, if they even want to, could go from like zero to a hundred, back to zero, back to a hundred in the space of about <laughs> 10 years. It just doesn't make any sense. Unless they somehow wrap into whatever Thrawn's efforts happen to be or would eventually roll into being the First Order, right? Like, yeah, maybe Thrawn dies, but whatever he's built and everything he has built 
it's passed down and then becomes a ver- like it has to be like the infrastructure that Thrawn's going to come back and renew. Sure. And you know what? I, I could buy that. And that would be actually what you're suggesting is a very good plot line. The problem is it doesn't explain like if Thrawn did that, then the new Republic should spend extra money on their fleet to pin Thrawn in to make sure they're ready for him or the first order if they ever came back. But it's clear from episode seven that the new Republic becomes completely complacent again because, you know, they're whatever. I even already forget it. Their big new Death Star three. That's also not a Death Star. The planet Death Star, you know, destroys Hosni and Prime, which is the current, you know, Republic capital and like a bunch of other, you know, planets again because they're complacent. It's just. It doesn't make any sense as far as like long-term canon goes. And it speaks to what you're saying. Like the show is only concerned with itself in its own gravitas of canon, its own little bubble of canon. It doesn't really care what comes. I mean, it cares what comes later in that it didn't want to be offensive and kill off important characters, but yeah, it, it, it just, yeah. I don't, I don't know what else to say. It just doesn't go anywhere. It's just, <laughs> it's frustrating, man. It's, it's kind of like you, you've, you've dumped the puzzle onto the table to start sorting pieces. And then now you find this piece labeled Ahsoka and you're realizing very quickly that I don't think this goes with this puzzle that I just yeah. dumped out here. <laughs> like this piece is extraneous. It, it doesn't fit in anywhere here. Like this goes with the rebels puzzle that I watch, I built, you know, three years ago that I finished and, and forgot about. <laughs> and now, oh wait, there's this one piece here that w- was an extra piece. Like, <laughs> well, you know, it uh, it raises some questions retroactively for episode seven, eight, nine as well, which is like when the first order comes back and everything. There's like no mention of the rebels helping out any of them, and like I get it, they didn't know they were gonna make this series and stuff at the time. But now that's kind of difficult to explain away in retrospect. Joe pointed out that apparently there's like a cameo without any actors of, is it the name The Ghost? Yeah, that's Harris Ship. Yeah, Harris Ship is The Ghost. It appears in the, you know, huge final battle in episode nine, like, you know, where all the ships are there, basically. They they cameo oh. so many famous ships. But it oh, is there. Okay. I, I mean, the only thing I can think of is... All of these series that we're currently getting eventually end with the Rogue One treatment where all the characters just die because that's the only thing that can- canonically makes sense. In in some finale, everyone is just dead. And therefore, you know, we get their efforts and we see the fruits of their efforts in future films, right? In the films that we've already seen, but they're just dead because they have to hey, be. Hera, Hera, yeah, it like season three of Ahsoka is going to end with Hera and Ahsoka on a beach. And they're both going to be saying as like this planet, planet explodes. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? I'm ready to die, but are you ready to die? Could be ready. Yeah. I'm ready. ready If you're ready. (laughs) It's like they get wiped out in a blinding white light. I'd actually laugh at that. Maybe I'd appreciate that. That I mean, or, or or the alternative is Ahsoka Sabine and Ahsoka and Sabine never get home. They just never, ever get home. I mean, let's, okay, let's rate because we, we can just keep going on and on, and on I think. Um, I, I'll start, uh, I suppose. I think I'm just going to give this uh, a six out of 10. Again, the, there's, <laughs> it doesn't sound like it, but I enjoyed a lot of this. And a lo- most of it, most of my enjoyment came out of being a fan of Rebels. 
Uh, I have already pre-written this down. I gave it a 6 out of 10 as well. So we're bang on agreement. Um, I debated giving it a 6.5, but I felt it didn't deserve a 6.5. It was entertaining. It was worth my time as a once through. I can't see myself ever going back anytime soon. It's fluff. It's cotton candy, Star Wars. Done with it. Better luck next time. 6 out of 10. <laughs> all right let's let's move on we're let's we're going move on yeah here. thanks for keeping us on track yeah we're gonna move on to the video game variety show where uh speaking of poor decisions when it comes to the star wars franchises we're gonna be talking about ea games and uh some of the i don't know what you want to call them scandals um that they've they've gone through some of the poor decisions they've made um they, I mean, I referenced them in Star Wars because they, at a time, held the sole license to make Star Wars games, which they no longer um, solely have. But I know, Moby, I know you've done uh, quite a bit of research. I'll ask you, of of the things that you looked at and looked into, what do you think is the worst thing that EA has done? Looking here, I think the worst thing would be they purchased amazing companies, companies that produced video games that bordered on art, like Origin Systems and Visceral Games, and they changed their culture. They changed their culture from these unique places of ideas and development and turned it into very corporate, you know, very sterilized black and white culture of 100. One of the main criticisms they got is like imposing hundred hour week crunch time, but like constantly just because of how EA does things where they push a lot of their franchises to create a yearly release or, or just, you know, if it's not a yearly release quicker, that that's what they do. They take something that's great and they break the cardinal rule of if it's not broken, don't fix it. EA tries to fix it by breaking it. I, I I mean we we've talked a little bit about like the crunch culture that exists in the in the video game industry and how uh, how toxic it can be for workers and for final products quite quite frankly um, I I don't I don't know what it is like it just as we as we think of I mean when I think of EA like I think of like AAA titles like they're a AAA studio right um, if you think of the games. Even even like their sport, even their yearly sports games, I would still think as like AAA titles. Yes, but I, I mean that isn't a term that I would usually bother putting or associating with like sports games. I don't know. I just I never really played sports games. I don't play any of the recent. I mean, even the last decade, I've I don't I've not played any of the EA sports games. Like I did not. They're not what I enjoy. I definitely do enjoy a lot of what EA did with like the Star Wars IP specifically. And that's probably what I, I associate them with the, the, the strongest in my own mind. You know, I think obviously after we went so long in the last segment, we're going to have to keep the segment a little shorter here. So allow me to go through point form, the main criticisms that I've researched that EA has. Now, basically all of them start at the early two thousands onwards. I really couldn't see much from the 1990s that they, that was controversial, but they basically became an assembly line for games. So their sports series were quite popular. They started releasing them on a yearly basis. And then when they bought new developers or, or made new franchises, they either wanted them release yearly or else on a very compressed and defined schedule. Now I would argue all games don't fit into that, but certainly non sports games don't fit into 
that. And um, the sports games get a lot of controversy because say you buy NHL 2002, which I owned, and I think I still do own in a box somewhere. But like the difference from EA 2002 to 2003 is like minimal. Like they may add one or so feature, but they expect you to pay the full $80, $70 price, whatever your currency is for the video game every year but they're not giving you much new. Like I was really into the EA hockey games in the early 2000s from 2002 to 2006. I didn't see a spike in quality, a noticeable improvement. 2006 noticeably improved on 2002, but that also means that there was like, you know, three years in between where there were basically like no improvements and, you know, might as well just, pick whatever roster one that had your best roster for your team and play that. Um, but they, they tried to apply that to all their other games. A notable situation was the Ultima series after they bought origin systems. EA apparently, according to the research I've done, pushed origin to release several Ultima games before they were ready. The company was telling them they weren't ready. The original creator of the Ultima series was saying they weren't ready. And EA's like, no, fuck it, do it, release it. It comes across as like suits in upper management who have no understanding of video games. They don't like them. They don't play them. They don't get development time. Just making corporate demands and just saying this must be followed. That's that's honestly one of the big things. Now, I didn't get a chance to dive into the particular reasons why. It's probably answer D, all of the above that we can mention. But Electronic Arts was actually rated the 2012 Consumerist Magazine Worst Company in America. But not only that, they won with 64% of the vote. And there's a lot of companies you could vote for. <laughs> That's the wow. big thing of my research was the 64% vote. The other big thing, Leland, is both DLC and loot boxes. And I mean, they were one of the first companies where... Their loop boxes, it wasn't just like, oh, this is gambling, but it was loop boxes are pay to win. Particularly Star Wars Battlefront 2. Uh, loot boxes were included in FIFA 2018 um, in what was called the Ultimate Team Mode. Yeah, I mean, they, they basically made games that were very difficult to progress, would take a ton of grinding unless you paid extra. I mean, it's just that simple. And people just hate that. I hate that. Yeah, and I th and I think the the other huge uh, the other side of that coin, that problematic coin, is um, the accessibility that that type of you know what 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 many jurisdictions consider to be gambling, the accessibility that underage people had to it as well. You know, literally, you're you're you paying money to spin a wheel to hope you get something good, right? Yeah, yeah, and it, it to to be truthful, different countries took that in different ways. Like in Europe, parts of Europe, specifically Belgium, was very hard on EA for loot boxes. They eventually had to be removed. Whereas British courts actually defended EA, saying that their loot boxes were akin to a Kinder Surprise egg in the way it's like you've already got the chocolate, you've already got the prize because you have the game. So whatever random toy you decide to open shouldn't affect that you overall already have a decent product. So I found that interesting. I mean, EA's defense for 
their loot boxes pretty bullshit. They said, well, we want fans to enjoy the true pleasure of discovering a hero who can change the game. It's like, yeah, who you have to pay a bunch of times to hopefully eventually unlock. Hopefully can. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, come on, EA. Like, really? That's your defense? Yeah, that's a line of shit. Like, come on. They also, it's one time, like, with their DLC, uh, after all the criticism they got for years on DLC on all games, their one defense was, hey, we're coming out with Sims 4 next year, and it won't have DLC. And as I did my research, I'm like, okay, so one game ever? That's like your defense is like one game didn't have DLC. By the way, I own Sims 4. A lot of DLC came after that statement, let me tell you. <laughs> so, you know, half the fucking town is DLC in my game at this point. So. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's, it's a very corporate system and it sucks. What sucks about EA is they own a lot of good IPs, right? And... You know, if you want me to to extrapolate to something that's more relevant in the time frame, I think a lot of people would be concerned if Microsoft will do the same thing with the or the the Blizzard Activision merger. You know, if Microsoft gets them, like will Microsoft just turn into EA 2.0 with all these great IPs and just you know rush every game, add DLC, add loot boxes to everything? I think that's that's a concern that's out there. Yeah, not to take the spotlight too far from EA, but I do think that makes uh, issues with them more time relevant, more in the moment. I mean, they're 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 one major video game company on on a growing list of companies that have has burned their uh, their their standing with you know consumers, right? I mean, you think of. Um, recent recent uh cd project red and and i think bethesda i mean they're they're obviously like smaller offenders that can still i think pretty easily write the ship on some of the missteps that they've had as as a production companies but you know when you think of like blizzard and activision um like they go through the same scandal shit the thing is like i don't know if it hurt like is is all all of all of this bad press actually hurting a company the size of EA, like how, and, and just how much can it impact their overall profitability if they keep continuing to do this, if without attempting to change things, because I mean, at least when it comes to battlefront two, they made the changes to that game. And now that game is pretty highly regarded for the current state that it's in by its player base. Um, like that they completely turned it around as far as what they were doing with, with loot boxes and the grind, like you mentioned. So I think there's some effort. I mean, there's effort in, in some places there. But when when you think of yearly releases of sports games that uh, a lot of people say, like, they're losing features year to year in some of those sports games, right? And I don't know if that's, if that's uh, or some of that is them trying to change and try to be new and try to make them feel like new games year to year. But like you said, for the majority of the time, if they just put out like a roster update DLC for like five bucks, you could get that for your current game, especially if it's, it's the, you know, the, a number of releases within the same generation of console or, or, or hardware. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. In fact, that's what a lot of their sports games have been criticized for is that they're just roster updates each year. And like literally, like if you're not going to do much else, 
Just, just like forget the whole seventy dollar game. Just throw it a ten dollar DLC. You know, in that case, the DLC is much better than having to buy a whole new game, which really isn't a new game. You know, I think you're you're right about that. I think what makes it a little difficult for you and I to talk about this is I think personally we've scorned EA for so long that we both don't play many EA products. We actually <laughs> have to research what they're they're doing with them. But, you know, again, like you mentioned, you know, we had tiptoed around this issue, touched on it a little bit on the periphery before. You know, I just wanted to to crystallize, you know, some of the problems here because I think they're extreme. Like one of the things I read, there's apparently a famous social media post by a woman who was a wife of an EA developer. And she said the mandatory work hours were 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. seven days a week. I don't oh know how you could pull God. that off in North America. How? Yeah. She said for good behavior, they would give a developer an occasional evening off on a Saturday starting at 6.30 p.m. So they would get off at <laughs> 6.30, be home by 7, instead of, you know, get off at 10 p.m. To me, that sounds like prison. That sounds like the worst prison, too. I was going to say that 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 does sound like they're in some type of, uh, you know, being held against their will in some facility chained to their their computer, typing out lines of code or whatever. <laughs> it speaks to the industry, right? And how uh, uh, competitive even the lowest rung positions are in the industry. Like think of think of all the majority of, you know, the personnel at EA is going to be like bottom tier developers right of of any given team there's only so much room and there's only a, a, a finite number of positions in the high the top tiers of any company regardless of its size right and it doesn't seem like even if with larger companies those top spots the number still stays the same you know what i mean like they don't swell yeah. to like the thousands of of the the base level employees that are working 80 hours a week like what well you know i i think I think that speaks to the a little bit of a larger issue here that we've discussed a little bit with my brother outside of the podcast, which is, you know, the tech industry has long kind of been looked at as a golden goose, right? It's like you get your computer science, you're developing training and you enter, you know, this chilled out beer o'clock sort of culture where you make lots of money, like very high money comparative to many industries starting out what you can earn and you get to, you know, you have a passion for video games. Well, now you get to make them, but it's a lot less glamorous. Like what you're saying, the tech industry is flooded with lower level developers right now. So how does EA get away with this? Well, they can afford to make lower levels eat this shit, the lower level developers, because those developers have to quote unquote, pay these dues for several years until they even have a hope of getting to this middle or upper level you're speaking of because there's just so many developers in so few positions. That's what's often worried me about tech. You know, my brother, he said, you know, you should get a job somewhere in tech. Well, tech, you know, hires people by droves, but then fires people by droves. Like it's amazing at what, how the, the back and forth in that industry with how many people they hire and fire. And, you know, I've been told by several people, you know, it's to do with like metrics, like middle level managers have to have a certain amount of people working for them to hit their metrics. So they don't even care what they do as long as they're in the office 100 hours a week. It sounds like an insane really? off the rails industry, to be quite honest. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, I mean, especially if it's a younger company or a startup, they need they need the the labor hours, and then so so like you say, yeah, it's a it's a grab for anybody that's willing to put in to do the grunt shit, right? And then as soon as that they've got the foundation, now they can just pair it back way back to enough people to maintain where they've gotten to, right? With that push, yeah. Until they're ready for another expansion, right? And and then it happens again, and then it's like cyclical. Again and again. And I mean, if you're a young developer who wants to get out of this, the desperation of wanting to get out of it will probably keep you there for the two years or three years until you can get out of it. But that doesn't make it okay. I mean, we're mentioning that they're primarily young developers. You're accurate. You know, I think that was mentioned in some of the articles I read. But in my opinion, I mean, that still doesn't excuse the poor labor culture um, that, you know, EA has created. And, you know, you just eventually you see it because all these people leave and then they have to hire new people, run them into the ground and they leave like an industry like that just doesn't sound sustainable. I mean, yeah, it doesn't feel like it. But what do you what do you what would actually be a step to change? Because, yeah, obviously, EA as a company decides to uh, perpetuate this this style of working, which is also then further part of and perpetuated by the overall industry of developing video games, which means, again, it being cyclical, they have to continue to push that to remain competitive and financially viable. So, yeah, you can say it comes down as to the individual company to decide they want to commit to that culture and push that culture upon their employees. But does it take more than a, a company, and again, even even one the size of EA, does it take more than that type of company to say, no, this is how this is not how we're going to do things anymore. We're going to we're going to change the way change our culture. And yeah, that might be that might go against the grain of the industry, but we feel that it's important for us to change for our employees and the people and the employees that we value. Where does that start? I, I tell you where I would start it. And I mean, I'm sure the EA higher ups would be like, oh, no, that would cost us too much revenue. Very simple start. The sports games move, which are their bread and butter, their, you know, their main component. They move from one year release to biannual. So every second year and you arrange it. So, you know, you've got the major league baseball game coming out in 2024. Hockey comes out 2025. Maybe they do a college football game. So maybe you pair college football, maybe you pair baseball and NFL, but you immediately double what they currently get as their development time. Now, is that where things end? Is that the only change you make? Probably not. But I can tell you all those developers who are currently working on a one-year cycle suddenly given two, I think that will give them some breathing space. You know, maybe maybe they work, you know, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. five days a week then or something like that. <laughs> so rough. I mean, it's more than what we do. It's certainly more than what you do. But, uh, oh. you know, it's, it's a start. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no. I, listener, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I mean, Leland's been racking and stacking podcasts today recording. Been recording since about 5.30 a.m. <laughs> I'm just like an Energizer bunny. I just, you set me off and I go, go, go. <laughs> He keeps going and going and going. <laughs> He's wearing sunglasses too. He stole them from Ghost Marty. Does he keep going? He might keep going. Will it keep going? <laughs> I, 
I think it I'm might keep going. my arms. <laughs> he may keep going. <laughs> what keeps him going, Leland? The Force. Oh, Why? Force. Because the Force is in everyone, including pink <laughs> bunnies wearing sunglasses. Oh, boy. Fuck you, Star Wars. Anyways... Yeah, when it comes to EA, that's that's the basic uh, criticisms. You know, and I just think, I guess my final point of this would be, uh, I would, I would ask gamers to look into the developers of the games they're interested in. Like, I get it. Look, like, if I heard some bad stories about Nintendo, I'm still buying the next Zelda. Don't get me wrong. But, like, in general terms, like, if, I, if it suddenly came out that X developer was a terrible leader or there's a terrible leadership team and they're very abusive to their employees most games i could probably give a pass to kind of try to boycott them a little bit you know i think us as fans need to push for our rights but also the rights of the developers who truly have the passion to make our games no i think i think that's i mean it just feels like whenever we have conversations like this like it's always going to boil down to the choices the consumers make because that is theoretically where all the power lies, right? Or where it's supposed to lie. I think it's it's very easy to just not think about that type of stuff, right? Not worry about that or care about that really is 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 the proper way to put it. Just it's so easy to not care about it and just enjoy what you're doing and what you're playing. Yeah, yeah, but you you, you know, you're right. You're right. But but it's like, you know, Leland, it's like if we know there's loot boxes in the game, we don't like that. If we know that the game's been rushed, if we know that the sports game has like a glorified roster update, just hold off. Like just, just don't. I mean, it sounds so simple, but the consumers don't seem to do it. But it's just like, hold off, reward companies that make, you know, good games. Like, look, I haven't beat the game yet, but I'm happy as a clam that Baldur's Gate 3 is doing so well financially and sold so well. Because even though I've beaten roughly one third of it, it's a well-made game. There's passion and love in that game. Great. Support it. Give it lots of money. Then new games like that will hopefully be made. We have to turn this industry into a reward punishment system. And I know that's taking something that's only recreational and turning into like this, you know, cold form of industrial psychology but i mean it really is that simple we have to punish the developers who rush produce poor content like ea often does but we've got to reward the good ones it's that simple i mean the, the game i'm most looking forward to in the entire world is concerned ape the guy who made stardew valley haunted chocolatier might come out next year might be the year after I just trust that dude. I know he loves what he does. I know he has a passion for games. Stardew Valley, one of my favorite games ever made. There. That's what I'm going to buy. That's what I'm going to throw my money behind. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice to, when you, like, a, like I mean, Stardew Valley is, like, the epitome of, of a success story, right? Like, uh, the, the dark, kind of the dark horse, out of nowhere, huge hit, all the passion, it's just so clear in every every bit of the game and every every interview you hear of with Concerned Abe and every comment that he's ever made about you know what he went through to to make the game and uh, how much he how much of himself that he put in it. It's just it's great when you hear the stories, but what makes them so special is how unique they are. 
which is also the negative side of stories like that, that they are so unique in this industry. You want, you would really wish that they would be less unique and that you would hear more and be able to play more of those games. And there are a lot more of those stories, but I just don't think, I mean, they're never getting the, the light, right? They don't, they don't get the, the airtime, so to speak, that they should or can when there's the big juggernauts in the industry that just overshadow everything, right? Even their, even the negative press of those juggernauts overshadow the the things that are being done right and the people that are doing what you know the quote unquote right way to develop, right? The the consumer friendly way to ve- to to develop. Absolutely, brother. I don't I don't have much to add to that. I think we're uh, we're pretty aligned. All right. End of show. End end of show stuff, baby. All right, our website is ttpopcast.com, the T-Hud Podcast on Facebook, TT Podcast on Instagram. I'm Leland underscore Steel on X, and that is who I've been. And I've been Moby. I'm not really on uh, social media too much. I always pledge to try to keep our Facebook page, which I run for the podcast, going. Do need to post more things there. But yeah, once again, just, just special thanks... Uh, from my end for retro gamer gen x uh for uh, collaborating with us listener we will see you next month for the end of year review and with that i will say take care listener thanks listener bye-bye this has been a sounds of steel production